0: Go ahead and turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, our first um, text we'll look at. will be from that place. I asked Nathaniel this minute to leave this song up that we just uh, sang. We sang this song a lot. In fact, it's probably one of our most often sang songs. But it captures exactly what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. Um, is this the very beginning of it? Okay, so Lord, the light of your love is shining. In the midst of darkness shining, Jesus, light of the world, shine upon us. Set us us free by the truth you now bring us. So there's the idea of conversion, of change on our part. Go ahead to the next one. Then shine on me, shine on me. This idea of shining. uh, Fill this land with the Father's glory. Blaze, spirit, blaze, set our hearts on fire. We're going to see a transformation in this song where God's done His work and bringing the light of His glory and grace into our lives, but then we become the conveyors of that light and glory. Let's see how the song continues. Uh, Is this the next one? Okay, flow river, flow, flood the nations with grace and mercy. Send forth your word, Lord, let there be light. Well, who sends forth the word of God here on this earth? Uh, We do as ambassadors of the message of, of salvation through the word of God. We end up being the conveyors of light. Okay. Lord, I come into your awesome presence from the shadows into your radiance. By the blood, I might enter your brightness. Search me, try me, consume all my darkness. So here's this idea of change. um, This darkness that was once part of our life, controlling us, now gets removed. And the brightness or the glory of God takes its place. This idea of shining on me, shining on me. There's one uh, verse that really caught my attention as we go on. Okay, this is it. Notice this. As we gaze into your kingly brightness... So our faces display what? Your likeness. Ever changing from glory to glory, mirrored here, may our lives tell your story. This is exactly what we're going to talk about today. This idea that our faces display the likeness of God and this is this ever changing from glory to glory where our lives tell God's story. But we don't ever look physically like God. But our character, we'll see this morning, takes on the character of God. We're going to continue this morning, what we looked at last week. Uh, the title of the lesson is simply, Amazing Grace, but also Amazing Answer. Uh, we sing the great hymn, Amazing Grace, and grace fills so many of the songs that uh, we sing, and even the song we just kind of reflected on just a moment ago, uh, takes on... The power of God's grace and to change our life, but also our answers also amazing, and that what God is looking for from us. Let's go through uh, just briefly what we looked at uh, last week as far as our response to being rescued. Um, we are born again. Uh, Jesus previewed that in John three when he talked to Nicodemus. Peter picks up on that in two places. And 1 Peter talks about about us being born again of uh, the Word of God and the idea that we're completely changed. We're not just cleaned up, we're not just um, washed over, uh, but we are born again. And it's an amazing rescue. And this theme of rescue carries through uh, Scripture as much as the idea of being saved. We are saved or rescued, it's an amazing reset where we get the opportunity that we don't get anywhere else or with anyone else. That is the ability to start brand new with a completely cleaned up slate. A new slate where God, as the Hebrew writer says, remembers our sins no more through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. He doesn't hold things against us still. He doesn't put us on parole or probation or any state where he considers us less than fully cleansed in his eyes and able to start again, hence the idea of being born again. We have these amazing steps of conversion where uh, instead of us being forced to prove ourselves for three years (laughs) that we can live sin free, which is not going to happen and hasn't happened. It's a mood issue. Uh, Sin is still something we wrestle with. But instead of God placing us on some three-year plan to see how well we do, He instead says, simply confess before me and before others that you believe that my Son is the Son of God. Uh, Believe with all your heart that I am the answer and that He is the answer to your problem with sin. Uh, Repent, Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. Repent from your sin. You've got to turn around. You've got to have the sense of remorse, but also this commitment to change. Not a proven change over three years, but a commitment to change when you're baptized. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is not only for your children, but also for those who are all afar off. Here, this step of simply repenting, which is a massive step, but still it's not an impossible step. And then being baptized, which we simply submit to, and we'll look at in a full lesson later on. With these amazing steps, we experience being born again. As the great hymn says, God accepts us just as we are, with that commitment alone to becoming a brand new person. But He doesn't leave us there. And this morning we're going to continue this amazing grace, amazing answer theme to talk about our response for the rest of our life, once we are born again. Because we're not just born again and made clean just to wave goodbye to each other after baptism and say, good luck, <laughs> wish you the best, uh, that was great that you were washed and it's was great that you're purified, but it's simply the beginning. Uh, just like when we're born again, uh, the baby's life uh, begins when you're born and um. There's a Facebook friend, uh, he and his wife just had a little baby, and they're posting pictures every day. And I feel like I'm watching that baby grow just as they are. The baby went from learning how to use a bottle, now the baby's laying on its back with one of those things that hangs over the child and grabs onto the the little things. And you can just see it growing because they're posting pictures every day. That baby is growing and will spend a lifetime not only growing physically, but growing in maturity and growing in character. So born again is... To be born again in baptism is just the beginning. Today, we're going to see what God is looking for. What is He looking for in our growth? A pediatrician, when a young infant is taken to the doctor, the doctor's going to look for different signs of growth. Uh, how much weight is the baby uh, taking on? Uh, uh, they'll do different visual and hearing tests to see if the baby's properly responding as it should uh, to sounds and to sights and things like that. And, The mother or father will bring the baby back again, and growth is measured. Pretty soon when the child is able to stand, uh, parents do their own measuring. Uh, A lot of parents will put in the door sill something to measure the height of the child. Then when children go to school, it's first grade, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, and they're moving on up. There's these measurable steps of maturity that we accept in our physical lives, and we ought to look for also in our spiritual lives. So today we're going to see this born-again experience as the responsibility of a lifetime the conversion process is an opportunity to start all over again but there's also a responsibility that we have just like there is for parents to raise their children there's a responsibility that we grow as god wants us to grow we're going to look at two passages in particular it's kind of foundational text and i might bring in a lot because i've got a lot written down here there's so many places um, we could go, but I want to look at these because I think they speak so powerfully to what God is looking for. Because we want to grow the way He wants us to grow, and these texts help us see what He is looking at. Second Corinthians chapter five. Let's begin reading. We're going to start with verse 14. Uh, I have 16 here, but I decided let's back up a little bit. Uh, The Apostle Paul is writing a second letter to the ancient church located in Corinth. You can visit the remains of the city of Corinth today. This is a a real city with real believers in it. A second letter. The first letter was primarily occupied with addressing a lot of problems the church had in different areas. The second letter uh, spends a lot of time validating himself as an apostle because some of the problems have continued. But in different places, the Apostle Paul will speak to what God has invested in them and how he wants to see them grow and change as believers. And let's start with verse 14, chapter 5. Paul writes to the Corinthian Christians, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. That's Pausing here, that's Jesus died for all, therefore all were dead, is kind of what Paul's saying here. They were dead in their sin. Verse 15, and he died for all, notice what he says next, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live, how? For themselves. He died that those who live, that's us, Christians, those who are rescued, saved, should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised again. This is a starting point. If someone was just baptized, this is probably one of the first verses I would sit down and go over with them. If they're trying to figure out, well, what do I do now (laughs) that I've been saved and uh, I know I've got a lot of sins to still tackle, a lot of temptations, what do I do now? How do I see my life now? He says, well, the the first thing is you don't live for yourself any longer. Uh, you're no longer living for Friday night and just to have fun. Uh, you're no longer living just to fulfill desires that God will call sinful or trying to express those desires in ungodly ways. Uh, you'll no longer live just to get attention to yourself, but instead you live to give attention to the one who made you. That's all a part of now you live for someone else other than yourselves. Because living as sin is just a powerful state of preoccupation. You're doing what you want to do. As um, so I talk to our assistant principals at school and our, 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 our dean, uh, they're dealing all the time with students who are just doing what they want to do. It might be cutting class. It might be being tardy. Uh, there's some with far greater problems because they're just doing what they want to do and they don't recognize the magnitude of the consequences of cutting class or getting in trouble different ways or using illegal substances and things like that. They're just focused on entertaining themselves and getting away with things at times. But then we see these conversions where enough time spent in the dean's office, enough time spent in after school uh, rehabilitation programs, we are starting to see some turn around that got off to an awful start in August. There's one student of mine, she's taking notes down class every day. She used to not even be there. She's coming to my class, Hey, are there other assignments I need to do? She's no longer just living for herself, but she's asking her teachers, what do I need to do as a student of yours? She's thinking outside of herself, and that's exactly how God wants us to see ourselves. Let's continue reading. We no longer live for ourselves, verse 16. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ this way. We do so no longer. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Let's just pause here. We saw earlier we don't live for ourselves, but instead we live for Him. Now we constantly are looking for direction from God and His Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, clarify how powerful that is. Verse 17, if we're in Christ, and that word in Christ appears frequently in the New Testament to describe someone who's in that saved or rescued state. They're not just favorable towards Christ. They've been rescued. They've repented of their sins. They've confessed Him as Lord. They believe with all your heart that, uh, their heart that He's the Son of God. They've been baptized. They're in Christ. They're in that relationship of being rescued. So if they're in that place, Paul says in verse 17, the new creation has come. Some earlier versions say, and they are a new creation. Or he is a new creation. And that's how those who are baptized, those who are believers in Christ, are always to see themselves as a new creation. Now, this is a very important description of ourselves. Sometimes those who've been baptized still feel haunted by their past. They recognize they've been washed, but they don't know how they could ever forget what they did. Sometimes they're still living with the consequences of what they've done, especially those who are converted in an imprisonment situation where they're still living out the consequences. They're forgiven in their soul, but uh, the state or the federal government still says these consequences still have to be lived out. The Apostle Paul was well aware, and he mentions on multiple occasions, that he once had killed Christians thinking that was the right thing to do as he persecuted the early church. So sometimes our challenge is to see ourselves as truly forgiven and free people. So Paul says here, you're a new creation. That we're not to wallow in the past, and we're not to be haunted by the past, or think that we really are not forgiven, and we're just that same old person... Because Satan will use those thoughts to try to remind us of what we used to be. But here, Christ tells us, here's what you really are in my eyes. You're a new creation. A brand new start has been granted to you. In fact, to specify it, verse 17, he says, the old is what? The old is gone. Now, that envelops a lot of things. All the sins of the past, wiped clean but also all the preoccupations of the past. All the things that got us into trouble, just like with this one student of mine. Uh, she has to learn to start being at school on time. She has to learn to get up early and uh, get to school, uh, not just go to the classes she wants to go to, but go to the classes she doesn't want to go to. Not just come to class to go to sleep again, uh, but to go to class now and take notes and take the test. And she's doing a great job of that. There's moments where she at times will... Uh, revert to some of the old things, but she's correcting herself because she understands what it means to be a student at San Mateo High School, what it means to be a a young girl as a sophomore and where she should be in life. And she'd rather have that identity than the old identity of someone that's always in trouble and getting phone calls home every day uh, from the dean. She's a new creation, if you will. She's living like that. But we as believers are truly that. The old is gone. The new is here. So even though we wrestle with things of the past or we wrestle with temptations that will always be there, God sees us as a new creation. Verse 18, Paul writes, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them. And He has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ ambassadors, that as though God were making His appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who knew, had no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 17, we're called new creation. But then here in verse 21, Paul uses this somewhat challenging set of words that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God is looking for something in us now that He's made us brand new. I love cars. And I love talking to people that like cars. And there's different attitudes about what you do with a car, like a collectible car or a classic car. There's some like to buy a, a very collectible car, like maybe a really nice Ferrari. And the first thing they want to do is put it in a garage. And then lock it down and close it up and keep the mileage to almost under 10 miles for the rest of the life. There's people that own cars like I love. They've never driven them. Or they'll even go to car shows, but they'll put them on a trailer and let the trailer take it to the show, and they don't want anyone touching it. They'll put stickers on the car, don't touch, don't touch. Uh, And that's how they view their their prized possession. You don't use it, you don't enjoy it, you just look at it. But then there's others. I was at a car show recently, and a guy that parked right next to me, he was letting kids go, yeah, come on in my car, and he was letting them sit in there, and he goes, you're not going to heard it, and it was like in a classic 56 station wagon chef. and he was just amazingly generous to everyone that was interested in his car, and he drove it there himself from the Central Valley, and he saw his car as something to be used and to, to be enjoyed and used even to interact with others who had, uh, that were young that had never seen a car like that. Um, and I think that's how we ought to see our lives, as we're called to here in Scripture. God does not Make us clean and then put us in a room to try to preserve us that way where we never interact with the world or we never engage in things, but instead, He wants us out in the world. The song that Nathaniel led us in, uh, Shine, Jesus, shine, he, he is shining through us. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that you are the light of the world. Now, you don't hide that light. And there's the little kid's song, Hide under a bushel? No. <laughs> No, we're to be in the world. God does not want believers just isolating themselves just to try to see if they can stay free from sin until He calls them home. We are to take on this reality of new creation and the righteousness of God. Let's go forward now to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to see another place where this, is, this change is described. We're going to look at the first 10 verses of chapter 2. We're going to look at some details in later lessons. But here, I just want to see the, the magnitude of change as captured in a few places. 2 Corinthians 5 was, we're new creation. We're born again, but we're also new creation. Created to be the righteousness of God. Notice how Paul describes it now as he writes to another church. It's the ancient uh, city of Ephesus where Christians are formed. They've heard the message. they responded to it just like you and I have. But notice what he tells them. They've already been baptized. Notice what he tells them about their life. Verse 1, Ephesians 2. He says, As for you, you were, what? You were dead. So he doesn't want them to forget where they came from. He says, you were dead, but you're not dead anymore is the point. You were dead in your transgressions and what? Sins. So we can never afford to forget where we came from, right? We can never afford to forget where we came from, that we've been rescued. We weren't born perfect. We weren't born holier than thou or anything like that. We came from a dying place. Verse 2, in which you used to live. You used to live in these sins when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The pause here, you might think, well, what's all that about? That is a description of Satan or the devil and we're going to talk about what his role is and lessons to come. But here he talks about those who are still under the influence under the influence of what Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount in his own Lord's Prayer, the evil one. There's an adversary out there in the spirit world that is out to destroy us but only has limited power to do that. He tries to entice us that we've got to give in. He says, but there's some people that are still under that control. It says, you're not under that control any longer. You're dead to sin, or you were dead, but now you're alive. Verse 3, all of us also lived, past tense, among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of what? Wrath. Wrath. We'll pause here. Again, Paul is focusing on remember where you came from and the commitment you made to leave that place. He says, all of us, verse 3 again, lived among them, that is the disobedient, at one time. (laughs) We used to be that way, you don't be living that way now, he's saying. Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. What is this gratifying the cravings? of our sinful nature. Well, some think we were born sinful. Some believe we were born sinful from day one in the the bassinet or the crib or even before we left the hospital. We were depraved in mind. And they believe that we inherited that sin from our parents and they got it from their parents going all the way back to Adam and Eve. The problem is Scripture doesn't support that. What Scripture instead supports is the idea that By a certain time in our life, and usually it comes in the early teens, some a little earlier, there becomes this desire to find the wrong thing when the option to pursue the right thing is there. Again, I I like to reference things from school because I I see these things. Uh, Elementary school teachers are dealing with precious little kids at times. They make mistakes at times. They'll do something wrong, but they're doing things because they're still learning things. But by the time they get to middle school, in fact, um, I was talking to Ricardo one time, about he encounters all different age groups at the, the young museum. And he's got it down, what the elementary school kids are like, the middle school kids, and the high school kids. The middle school kids start doing a little testing. They start, they're interested in the dark side. Use some Star Wars metaphor. They're interested in the dark side. And they'll inquire within. They'll try doing things but by high school, when they get to be a certain age, especially in the later teen years, there are some that just have given themselves over to sinful nature. It's not that they can't turn around. It's not that they're evil to the core inside, but they've learned to enjoy the wrong things too much. And they're getting pleasure and satisfaction from doing things that are sinful, from wrong. that are getting them in trouble, hurting their families. But that's what they seem to enjoy. Some just enjoy the attention of getting in trouble rather than getting good grades, which is a problem. But they've learned to enjoy that more, and that's what ends up being the problem. So when he says here, we were at one time, verse 3, at one time we were gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. uh, At one time all of us were doing that. We were just doing what we wanted to do. Not all the time. Not in every moment, but when the temptation came, whether it was to get real mad at someone or go to the wrong place or do the wrong thing, we most often chose the wrong thing. And that's gratifying our sinful nature. We were, when door one and two was presented, we always were choosing the wrong door most of the time. And he says we're deserving of wrath. Even though we did not agree with it and we don't agree with it, God says if someone after being made in His image, chooses the wrong direction, they're deserving of punishment. When someone chooses the wrong direction of life just to live for themselves, you don't have to live a recklessly sinful life. Uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, just living for yourself, not living for your creators, deserving of wrath. But then he talks about a change, verse 4. Ephesians 2, verse 4. But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, verse 5, made us what? Made us alive. There's that amazing grace. He takes those who are dead and makes them alive, though they don't deserve it. It's great love is what's driving it. He made us alive with Christ even when we were what? Dead in transgressions. Uh, We were drowning. We were needing a rescue. And He comes along and He rescues us. We just grab on to the life preserver of believing and confessing and repenting, being baptized. We come to the place where God saves us. He makes us alive even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Just pause here. Christians always remember it was not their goodness that rescued them, it was God's what? God's grace, His unmerited favor. When the person who's drowning out at sea all of a sudden sees the Coast Guard helicopter coming close and drops the basket down to them, and usually a uh, Coast Guard personnel comes down with them, maybe two, they get in the basket, and then the, uh, the wind pulls them up into the uh, helicopter. The first thing they say is usually, Thank you, not, man, did you see me get in that basket? Did you see how well I threw my leg into the basket right when the... They never say that because they were saved by the grace of the Coast Guard. We are saved by the grace of God, not by our own goodness. So it reminds us of that. Then verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is an amazing verse, verse 6. Let's look at it closely. God raises us up. It doesn't say he drops us off. Using that old Coast Guard thing. The Coast Guard usually will drop you off. (laughs) And then you're taken into a gurney to get all checked out. But God here raises us up to a new level that we never were at before. He raises us up with Christ and seats us with him in the heavenly realms. It doesn't say he will do that, but he does do that before we experience our full experience of heaven. God is telling us, I, you're born again. And in a very spiritual sense, he says, you are raised to sit in the heavenly realms with Christ. The Christ is seated at the right hand of God right now. So in some very real way that we just believe by faith, God elevates us to this status we don't deserve. We're raised to sit in the heavenly realms with Christ. In other words, God puts us in a position of honor. He doesn't want us always sulking about the past or worried about the past haunting us or or catching up with us in some way or scaring us. He wants us to live as free, rescued people. So he tells us, I raised you up to sit in the heavenly realms with Christ. You're in an honored position, and I believe that's probably a very protected position as long as we stay there. Verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his what? Expressed in his kindness. Exactly, Ricardo. His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Let's just pause here. Let's just think about that. God's wanting us to know about his kindness. Kindness. He doesn't shout at us like an angry father. You better never do that again. Or I better not have to rescue again. God's not shouting out things like that. Even though He will have to forgive us of our sins as we confess them. But He wants us to know that we've been saved by His kindness. That He loves us more than we'll ever know. And He rescued us because He loved us. He loves the people He created. Verse 8. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This not of yourselves, it is the what? The gift of God. Verse 9, not by works, so that no one can boast. No one can say how good they were. Then he says this, and this speaks to what our life is to look like. For we are God's handiwork. Created. In Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What I see here in verse 10 here is that we have some marching orders, if you will. Verse 10, first of all, Paul says we are God's handiwork. He made us this way. He, he washed us clean. He made us a new creation, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. But then we're told why he did that. Why he didn't just wash us off and drop us off. It says he created us in Christ Jesus to do good works, which is a very broad expression. But we know it's the opposite of bad. Whatever it is, he's creating us for something that's the opposite of the way we used to live. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5? He talks about the way you used to live. You lived for yourself. But now you live for Him. So, whatever this new life is, it's the opposite of living for yourself and your God's handiwork to live for the things that are important for God. Just like this student of mine, she's now living for the things that are important to school, the things that were important to her parents her grandparents people that are invested in her life in different ways, she's living for them. And, and ultimately, she's living for herself in the best of ways instead of living for getting in trouble and doing what she just wants to do and always suffering the consequences of that. Same with us. We're God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. But then this last phrase, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here God was thinking far more deeply than perhaps we were thinking when we were baptized. We just wanted to be forgiven. I remember as a young man when I was baptized, I was scared to death of hell. I had heard many sermons about it. It was not a place I wanted to go. I recognized I was at an age where I could understand right from wrong, and at times I'd be choosing the wrong. And in a very real way, I did not want to suffer the consequences of going to hell, which is a very legitimate reason to be baptized, to be converted. But it's not the only reason. Just like for the student, the only reason to come to class is not just to get a good grade, but to be a good student and eventually become a, a good citizen and make your parents proud. There's a lot of reasons to be different. Well, here God tells us we're created in, and God prepared for this in advance. That when he did allow us to experience being born again and give us that opportunity of a lifetime, he wanted us to take on the responsibility of a lifetime to now allow our life to be consumed with good. And there's no area of our life that God does not touch. Thomas alluded in his comments before the Lord's Supper about marriage. There's instruction on marriage. If you're in a marriage relationship, here's how husbands are to act and treat their wives, and here's how wives are to act and treat their husbands. Parents are given instruction on how to raise their children. Children are given instruction on how they're to be respectful to their parents. There's information or instruction, I should say, uh, on how employees are to work for their employers and how employers are to treat those who work for them. There's instruction on how we are to treat our neighbor. Jesus said we are to love our neighbors. And neighbors aren't just the people that live right next to us, but people that we encounter in life. You know, our lives are not put in the garage and locked away where we don't ever engage in this world. Like some kind of classic car that never gets driven. But instead, we're told when we're converted to keep our jobs. To stay in the world. Don't try to leave the planet where sin cannot touch you. But stay on the job. Keep working. Stay in your families. Stay in your relationships that are right. Right? and engage them with now this new change mentality. In the weeks to come, we're going to look at how we do that. These character qualities of Jesus' own compassion, His mercy, His character, we constantly work on that. I want to end with one text that's not on your uh, outline here. I want to look at the text of Luke chapter 4. Luke 4. I've been reading through the Gospel of Luke in early mornings, and... You'll see this a lot, where Jesus demonstrates certain character qualities and he wants other people to emulate them. I believe Michael, in a previous lesson, I think his most recent one, talked about Jesus engaging those who had leprosy in the first century. If you had leprosy, this contagious skin condition, you were to be isolated from other people simply so that they would not be infected. But Jesus came doing just the opposite. He went out to touch those and to heal those who had leprosy. Let's look at Luke, it's chapter 5 actually, chapter 5, verse 12. And this is the spirit of Jesus towards people that he encountered, that no one else had anything to do with. Verse 12, Luke 5, While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus ordered him, Don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Verse 15, yet the news about him spread all the more, so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their afflictions or sicknesses. And then verse 16, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Here we see Jesus' compassion on display. He sought to heal people that had no healer but him. So we find His compassion, but we also find Him teaching about change of life. Look to chapter 6 now. This will be our last verse. Luke chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus taught, but love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be what? Children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Verse 36 Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. What we spend a lifetime doing after baptism is completely changing our character. Instead of living for ourselves, we live for him who died for us. And here's this one specific area, being merciful, being kind to us or being kind to others who are not kind to us first. There's people in our lives that are easy to be nice to. There's coworkers of mine that I just love them to death. It's easy for me to be nice to. But there's some fellow teachers that I struggle with. <laughs> But it's no big deal that I'm nice to people that are nice to me that I get along with. It's how I deal with fellow teachers that maybe have a completely different personality, maybe rub me wrong at times, maybe I'm rubbing them wrong. There's not a measure of goodness if I just treat nice students that are nice to me. There's some that just love Mr. Mulligan, but there's some that seem not to be able to say hi to me at times, or they don't want to seem to do anything I ask them to do. It's how I treat them that's a real measure of me as a teacher. But the same is true as us as Christians. Whether it be simple things like how do we treat people that cut us off when we drive, that inflame those emotions, how we deal with difficult neighbors, how we interact with coworkers that push our buttons from 8 o'clock to 5 o'clock, how we deal with family members that we've had run-ins with and we find it hard even to speak to them. How we deal with people that betrayed us or hurt us. People that said they'd do one thing and did another thing. That becomes a measure of our character. And to love them, though they don't deserve to be loved. And they're maybe even doing things presently that are not what they ought to be doing. How do we deal with them? What God is working on is an entire life of treating people just like His Son treated them. And we'll look in weeks to come on what that looks like. And we'll see a lot of passages that talk about these qualities that we're to take on, what God looks to get rid of, but what He wants to replace the bad with. And it's a beautiful picture of the Christian life where we're ever growing, always changing from the time of new birth at baptism to the time that we go home to be with the Lord. We're always growing, and there's always something that God's looking at to say, I want you to continue to work in this area. Where we take on the life of his son that he showed us when his son came to this earth. He showed us what God looks like. So we and that's the value of all Michael's lessons about the life of Christ, because we're seeing that. And he's teaching us so well. But today we know our purpose. We're new creation. We were once dead in sins, now we're made alive. And we're to live as people that are alive. Uh, It's a responsibility of a lifetime. That's how great it is, but that's also how long it is. (laughs) We spend the rest of our life coming to this point. We're always growing through the word of God.